Good morning, everybody. It's always great to teach again at River Glen. Big shout out to everybody joining us online and over at the Pewaukee campus as well. Hello to my family over there worshiping this morning. Well, right up front, I want you to go ahead and take out the, the listening sheet from the program this morning and look at the back of it. Let's all go ahead and take that out. You can see there that there is a candle there, but something's missing from the candle. What's missing? The flame, right. We are all going to draw in the flame in just a minute. But before you do that, I want to tell you what that flame is going to represent, what you're actually going to be drawing. Now, Jesus told his followers they were the light of the world. And so as his followers, we want to carry the light of Jesus into the places that we go. When I was here in December, we talked about the concept of a coracle, how Celtic monks would get in a round-shaped boat called a coracle. They would push off from the shore and they would pray, God, use the wind and the waves to take us to where you want us to be. And wherever that boat landed, they would get out and they would say, this is our mission field. This is where we are going to shine the light of Jesus. And we said in a similar way, let's pray, God, Use the, the wind and the waves of life where you're already carrying us as places where we can take your light. So our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, even where we go to the gym, we want to carry the light of Jesus. And it's why we have things like Love Pewaukee and Love Waukesha. Why we have things like Rock the Block. Why there are things that take place that might sound more like outreach than focusing on what's happening within these four walls because we want to take the light of Jesus with that. So with that in mind, I would like you to go ahead and draw the flame on your candle and I want it to represent how you are shining the light of Jesus currently. In other words, if you feel like your light is shining really bright for Jesus right now, you're going to draw a really big flame. Okay, maybe you had an opportunity at work this last week to talk to a coworker about how God wants to connect with that person uh, intimately and individually, wants to get to know that person. And so you feel like, wow, my, my light is burning pretty bright right now. So it's going to be a huge flame. Maybe you used to prepare meals for an elderly neighbor and deliver them once in a while, but it's kind of been a while since you did that. And so maybe your flame is diminished a little bit. Still there, but not as bright as you once thought it was. Or maybe you got really excited about shining your light for Jesus, but then life happened. Family struggles, marriage issues, drama at work. All of a sudden it felt like your candle was snuffed out. And so all that's left is just a smoldering wick. Maybe you want to draw a little trail of smoke, a wisp of smoke coming up from your candle. Or maybe you're here and you're just kind of exploring what it means to, to follow Jesus and what this church thing is all about. And you're really not sure about this whole lighting a fire, isn't that kind of dangerous kind of a thing. And so you want to draw a price tag on your candle. Say, hey, it's, it's new. I, it hasn't been lit yet. Go ahead and be honest as you draw it. I mean, I think we'd all like to be able to draw that huge flame where like it looks like it might light the hair of the person in front of us if we're not careful. But if we're honest, I think a lot of us would draw a flame that's not quite so bright. I mean, we come here, we get excited on a, a, a weekend during one of the services. We are going to take the light of Jesus into our community. And then life happens. And all of a sudden it seems like life throws about 12 six-year-olds who think this is their birthday candle and need to blow it out, right? And all of a sudden 
it's snuffed out. What happened? We were so excited. We were going to go make a difference. We had this light, this flame that we were going to carry into the world, and now it's gone. Well, we're in the third week of a series called Recalibrate. It's all about how worship recalibrates our lives to God. As we go through the crazy twists and turns of day-to-day life, we can kind of drift off course spiritually and lose perspective. Forget about the truths that we decided we're going to live our, our lives based on. And we wander from God and sometimes end up in places we didn't intend to be. And so kind of like a compass that's always pointing north, we need something to recalibrate our lives, get us back on the right path. Worship is that something. Points us to Jesus, recalibrates our hearts to God. So during this series, we're learning about what it means to worship. And last week, we learned that worship is about remembering. Remembering who God is, remembering who God says we are. And when we take time to remember, we remember God's greatness and how much we're loved by him. Well, today we're going to learn that worship also involves receiving. Through worship, we receive Jesus and his truth for our lives. God's a generous giver. He's always giving to us, but sometimes we're not that great at receiving. Have you ever left a weekend worship service, a celebration service, and thought, you know, I don't don't know that I really got much out of that. I travel a lot of Sundays uh, with my work with Christian Financial Resources. I end up in different churches uh, most Sundays of the year. And I got to be honest, uh, as I leave some of those service, services, I find myself thinking that, ah, I, don't, I don't really got much out of that. Maybe I didn't connect with the style of music. Maybe there was a certain mannerism of the preacher that kind of distracted me. Maybe I got bored during the message and kind of zoned out. Nobody's doing that right now, right? But thankfully, sometimes the Holy Spirit convicts me and shows me that maybe it was my attitude that was wrong in the first place. Maybe I didn't receive anything because I didn't go into it expecting to receive anything, looking for what God had for me to receive. Now, when Jesus prepared to leave his followers to return to the Father, he gave them a promise, and it was this. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. See, God is is present with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's in us and around us. So God is always teaching, reminding. God is always giving. But sometimes we're not very good at receiving. And a lot of times it has to do with our posture. I'm not talking about how straight you're sitting up in your chair right now. It has to do with our attitude, the posture of our heart. That can sometimes get in the way of us receiving. For example, sometimes we rush around on Sunday morning or Saturday night in order to get here, and we come in here with a very hurried posture. And it's halfway through the service before we can even begin to kind of settle down and start thinking about what God has for us to receive. Because we haven't created margin to allow us to breathe and to listen and receive. Sometimes we come here with an angry posture. Maybe we have unresolved conflict with someone and it kind of elevates the anger potentially if that person is even in the room with us here as we worship together. Jesus, when he was giving a, a particular teaching that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you, when you go to worship, if you realize that there's conflict between you and somebody else, go resolve that first because that anger 
can get in the way of receiving what God has for us. A resistant posture can get in the way. Sometimes we don't receive because, frankly, we're not interested. We're not willing to receive. Like me, sometimes, in some of the churches that I'm in, I become more of a movie critic than a participant in what's taking place. And sometimes we hold a passive posture. It's not that we're resistant. We just don't expect to receive anything. So we're just passive observers of something that's taking place instead of engaged participants. But I believe that when we gather to worship, God has something for us to receive. And I, I think God has something for us to receive collectively. Hopefully we all leave this morning having received something. But I think individually, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has things for us to receive as well. You may, be, may receive something this morning through the teaching of the message. God's written word. You may receive something when you come here to worship through the words of a song that almost jump off the screen as you read them and as you sing them because you realize it connects totally with something you're experiencing right now in your life. You may receive something through a conversation that takes place, maybe just reconnecting with someone or maybe hearing how someone uh, has seen God at work in their lives. Sometimes it's through the ministry of prayer by asking someone to lift something up on your behalf before the Father. Or maybe it's just through being reminded of his presence that we receive something. What if every week we entered this time together with that kind of expectation that God wants to do something here. When we encounter the daily struggle of trying to take the, the light of Jesus into the world and it gets snuffed out, how do we relight it? How do we get that flame rekindled? Here. Coming together. Encouraging one another. But the posture of my heart can sometimes prevent me from receiving what God has for me. And we're certainly not the first generation of Christ followers to experience that. The early church, some of the earliest followers of Jesus, we read in the Bible that they gathered regularly. At some points, it appears that even daily they were gathering together, and they would have a big meal or a feast. Sometimes someone would share what God had done in their life or read a letter maybe that one of the early church leaders had sent to that church. Over time, those gatherings grew, and so they might invite someone to deliver a message of encouragement to everyone. But a meal was a big part of what they would do together. Unfortunately, for one church that met in the city of Corinth, their priorities got a little bit messed up. Their posture was not what it should have been, and the emphasis shifted and we see from what Paul writes to them in a letter to them to try and correct them and get them back on the right path, they had shifted things. So those who were wealthy were bringing a lot of food to eat and almost having an early meal before the poor people would get there. And those who didn't have as much might not get to eat or they might have to sit at seats that were not kind of the choice seats around the table that those who have a higher status got. And so the Apostle Paul, the early church leader, writes a letter to the church at Corinth to try and set them straight. And he says, guys, you're missing it. You're supposed to be receiving something but because of your posture, you're missing it. This is what Paul writes. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry 
and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says you're distorting the whole meaning of this meal. It's not just a meal. It's supposed to be special and significant. God has something meaningful for you to receive there. So what Paul describes was happening there at the church at Corinth is not what our coming together is supposed to look like. But Paul does extend later in that letter a description of what it could look like. If they would reorient, if they would recalibrate, if they would focus on what God could do during their time together, he paints a picture of what that could look like. In 1 Corinthians 14, and we will get there in a minute because it's going to really throw the guys off in the back if we jump to it now. Because I told them that what was coming next was a passage in Hebrews, which also tells us something that we experience when we come together. In fact, it's a challenge that tells us what might happen if we don't. Here's what it says. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Not avoiding worship together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. How do we spur one another on to love and good deeds? How do we encourage one another in taking the light of Jesus into our communities? Right here, in what we're doing now, in our meeting together. And Paul says, if you give that up, as some do, you miss out. And let me be upfront about something. It's not just that I miss out on something. If I'm not here, I don't encourage you. If we give up this celebrating together, I'm not able to encourage, I'm not able to ignite a spark in the lives of others. And so my absence becomes a lack of encouragement to others. See, when I'm worshiping God and there's awareness in me that I'm in a, a room full of people that have the, the same wonder of God and, and I connect with those around me through that kind of shared experience, I'm encouraged. There's significance in the us part of worship. There's a tendency to say, you know, worship, it's about you and God. And there is an element of worship that's about me and about me connecting with God, but that's not all that, not all that there is. It's about me and God and us collectively. So when I'm here and I'm aware of the others worshiping with me, I'm encouraged. During the meet and greet, when I briefly connect with other people, I'm encouraged. Maybe that's more so because I am an extrovert. It fixed my personality a little bit. My teenagers tell me they have an approach, some of them, to the meet and greet time. It is stand still, look straight ahead, make eye contact with no one, and maybe nobody talks to you. But that's their approach to it. But when I stop in the aisle and I, I reconnect with someone that I haven't talked to for a while and they share something God's doing in their life, I am encouraged by that. I'm spurred on. Worship isn't just about me forgetting everybody else in the room to connect with God. 
It's about joining everyone else in the room as we connect with God together. And if I don't make an effort to connect in that way when I'm here, it may lack the encouragement that I'm supposed to be giving to others. We were never meant to do this thing of following Jesus as an island on our own. In his book, Hope From My Heart, Rich DeVos writes this. None of us is self-sufficient in our spiritual lives. We need God and we need each other. A lot of people go to church because they think God takes role. For them, the important thing is to make sure their name gets checked off every Sunday on the heavenly roster. But that's not the way it works. Church is not some kind of moral obligation, some habit or tradition that is the right thing to do. Church is a place where we worship God, share our faith with the, with the community of believers, build each other up, and get empowered to go out into the world and live out our faith. Similarly, some people think of their spiritual life as if they were one person in a telephone booth. If you have younger kids, you'll have to tell them what a telephone booth is. Talking to God on a private line. They don't want to be bothered by the demands of organized religion and don't think they need anyone else. Oh yeah, I'm spiritual, they say. I just don't like church. To those folks I say, you cannot grow spiritually in isolation. Followers of Jesus weren't meant to be merely individual units, totally independent and disconnected from each other. Instead, there is encouragement when we come together. There is hope when we come together. There's renewal and rekindling when we come together so that when we part from each other, our smoldering wicks have been replaced with flames of light that we can carry into our homes and our schools and our workplaces. When we gather in worship, it's with expectancy that God is going to do something. And remember Paul told the church in Corinth what it could look like? Let's take a look at what he said it could look like when that happens. But if some unbelieving outsiders walk in on a service where people are speaking out God's truth, the plain words will bring them up against the truth and probe their hearts. Before you know it, they're going to be on their faces before God, recognizing that God is among you. See, if I walk into a place like this and I'm exploring Jesus and exploring church. And during this time, I look around the room and it just kind of seems like a whole bunch of passive observers just trying to get through this time so they can go home and do whatever else they have to do for the day. It's pretty easy for me to say, man, I, I could have stayed home, read the paper, drank my coffee in my pajamas, passed on this whole thing. But if I come here... And I see a group of people clearly engaging, clearly expecting God to do something. It's much easier to reach the conclusion that God is at work here. That there is something that I can discover about God by being here. So I want to evaluate my participation or my lack of participation in light of that. Does my participation when we gather here together... Encourage others to say, God is at work here. Or does it encourage others to conclude they could have just stayed home and read the paper instead? Do people still read the paper? I still read the paper. If you're cool, you still read the paper. How's that? Thank you. See, there's something amazing that happens when we recognize the us in worship. In fact, one of the things that I love about our coming together like this is how, how our worshiping together almost becomes 
a great equalizer or leveler among us. Because during the week, day to day, we are constantly slapped with labels. And sometimes we like them, sometimes they hurt. I mean, when's the last time you checked out to pay for anything, whether it was at a, a convenience store or the grocery store or a department store, and you were not asked, are you a rewards member? I don't carry my wallet, my main wallet in my pocket anymore because it has so many rewards cards that it was just impractical, right? Like the Speedy Rewards, I've got the Ace Helpful Hardware Club, the Gold Crown Hallmark uh, Rewards, Hilton Honors, Craftsman Club. Man, I keep dating myself by things that I, I, I mention. There's a particular hotel I stay at a lot, a hotel chain that I've reached their highest uh, tier of rewards. And so with all my travel for work, when I pull up to that hotel, one of those hotels, there's a parking space just for me. And when I go in and check in, they thank me for being a diamond member and oftentimes give me a little bag with gifts, gifts that cost about 97 cents, but hey. And if I ask and there's a suite available, They'll upgrade me to it. I love that status. There's something about us in some ways that adopts labels, that loves status. But sometimes we get labeled by things and it hurts. Poor. Socially awkward. Sometimes we're even labeled by the color of our skin. But when we come in here and we take a seat, we sit as equals. And so when God looks around the room and sees us gathered, he doesn't see banker, attorney, doctor, school teacher, maintenance worker, janitor. He doesn't look around the room and see black man, white woman, brown child. God looks in this place and sees my child, my child, my child. When I'm in this place and I look down the road to my right and my left at the others here, I see my brother, my sister, my sister, my brother, my family in Christ. There's something beautiful about us coming together. Labels gone, distinctions thrown away, walls torn down as together we celebrate that we are equally in need of the forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus and we are equally grateful for what he's done for us that we couldn't do on our own. And when we're able to do that, we're able to celebrate distinctions gone. It's actually a picture of what heaven is going to be like. Here's how it's described in the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen.
every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, all equal, no distinction, crying out in praise before God for eternity. You see, when worship is not just about me, not even just about me and God, but when it's about me and God and us together, something beautiful happens. So let's go back to our candles. When we're here together and we offer to each other encouragement and hope, we spur one another on so that our flames are rekindled. Did you notice what happened there? This candle was lit off of this one. But is this one's flame weaker now? No, they're both burning brightly. And so when we come together and we encourage and we spur and we rekindle, we become an army unleashed to do good, to take the light of Jesus into our community. We're encouraged. And that is what this gathering together is supposed to be like. And so from your brother or sister who is here today, who almost crawled in because their flame had been snuffed out by what they encountered this week. Thank you for being here to offer the light to rekindle that flame. And I pray that every week that is our experience when we gather here. That regardless how little flame we have left, this time reignites the fire so that we can go out encouraged to do good and to love in the name of Jesus. Some of you may remember a story that was big news back in 1988. There were some gray whales that were trapped just off the coast of Point Barrow, Alaska. They were trapped in the ice. I say that they were trapped because whales are mammals. They need to breathe at the surface. So they can't breathe if they're under a large block of ice. There was a pocket of water that had not frozen where they were able to breathe, but then from that spot out to open seas where they could breathe, there was a huge section of ice that had formed, and it was too much ice, too far of a distance for the whales to be able to swim without breathing. And it became big news because as word got around, Russians and Americans were working together, Cold War enemies at the time, working together to try and rescue these three gray whales. And they decided the only hope that they had for getting these whales out to open sea where they would be safe was to cut a series of breathing holes in the ice. They had to be close together because they had to try to coax the whales from one to the next. And so they worked with chainsaws and they had to use spears to keep the water moving so that they wouldn't, those holes wouldn't freeze back over. But gradually, over the course of several days, they were able to coax the whales from one breathing hole to the next. The youngest, the smallest of the gray whales at one point disappeared and was presumed dead. But it's believed that the other two were able to make it out to open water where they could breathe freely again. I recently came across a, a story where someone compared this, these breathing holes to our gathering together in worship. Here's what they wrote. 
in a way. Worship is a string of breathing holes the Lord provides his people. Battered and bruised in a world frozen over with greed, selfishness, and hatred, we rise for air in church, a place to breathe again, to be loved and encouraged until the day when the Lord forever shatters the ice cap. This is our place to be reignited so that we can go out again for another week. And then for a week, it feels like the world beats up on us. But again, we come here for the flame to be reignited. Now, we've talked a lot about the importance of gathering together like this as, as followers of Jesus. And you may be here this morning at a spot where you're thinking, wow, I, I kind of have been doing this for a while. But I feel like it's time for a next step. And maybe that next step is baptism. Next weekend is Baptism Weekend, both, uh, both campuses here in Waukesha and in Pewaukee. Baptism is taking place after every service. And so if you're interested in, in taking that step next weekend, there's a welcome card in the seat pocket in front of you. If you want to go ahead and grab that and fill that out and indicate when you'd like to be baptized. Or you can go to our website, and click on Baptism and indicate which service you would like to be baptized. We talked about how the early church, they would gather and they would have a meal together. The culmination of that meal, kind of the, the high point of that meal, was something they called the Lord's Supper. We often call it communion today. Where they would remember Jesus' sacrifice for them by doing something he'd asked them to do. They would eat some bread, a reminder of how his body had been broken for them. And they would drink some fruit of the vine, some juice or wine, a reminder of how Jesus' blood had been shed for them. And we do that still to this day in a time called communion. Oftentimes, the focus on communion is taking, right? We're going to take communion. And during communion time, we take the tray from the person who's passing it to us, and then we take the cup and, with the bread and juice out, and then the next person takes the tray from us, and so it continues. But today, as we have a time of communion, we want to focus on receiving. Yes, as we learned last week, remembering is part of communion. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And today, we're going to talk about how we receive, or we want to focus on how we receive what Jesus did for us when we remember. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray, and the band will lead us in a song and then if you would like to receive communion, there are some stations in the room where you will go and do that. And a volunteer will be holding a tray. And as you walk up, they will say to you, receive the body and blood of Christ. And then you'll grab a cup with the bread and the juice and return to your seat to remember whenever you're ready at your seat what Jesus did for us. And please, please know you're not obligated to participate in this time. It's totally okay to remain in your seat. But any, any follower of Jesus is invited to receive and remember with us. So again, I'm going to pray. And then the band will lead us in a song. And if you'd like to receive, you can go to one of our stations. There will be several up front and a couple in the back as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that we now remember and receive. Father, thank you for this time together when we can be encouraged, rekindled, 
Father, we pray that this morning has been a time of spurring one another on. Father, we pray that we will remain committed to doing that, to being here to encourage others. Father, we pray that we come with hearts ready to receive what you have for us. And as we receive now the body and blood of Jesus, may we reflect and look at our own lives to see what we need to do to recalibrate according to your will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.